We have a packed edition of Up in the Blue Seats this week. We chat with a trio of our New York Post writers. First, it's Molly Walker on the Rangers playing in Las Vegas. Then Kirsten Fleming on her Jacob Truba cooking story. And finally, Larry Brooks chats about the Rangers run to the Cup this week, 26 years ago. One of the members of that 94 team, Jay Wells, then joins the show. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple, be sure to rate us five stars and write a nice review, please. New episodes of the show are released Wednesday afternoons. We have a trio of New York Post writers joining this week's episode, our pals Molly Walker and Larry Brooks, as well as Kirsten Fleming making her show debut. Ron also chats this week with a member of the 1994 Stanley Cup champion Rangers, Jay Wells. Speaking of Doogie, who rocked number 10 in Ranger Blue, here he is, Ron Doogie! Hello, welcome everyone. So this week, the 26th anniversary of the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup. The post Larry Brooks and Jay Wells from that 94 team will join us later in the show. Look forward to that. But first, uh, we get into the current Rangers, who will soon be getting ready for their playoff series with the Carolina Hurricanes. Where will they train when camps open July 10th? Let's talk with New York Post sports writer and friend of the program, Molly Walker, about it. You can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly Walker. So Molly, Welcome to the show once again. First, I have to ask you, how's your mom? <laughs> She's great. Now, let me tell you, she loves every time when you ask about her. It makes her whole day. <laughs> well, it's good. I, I you know, I, I always appreciate speaking to those who had, uh, who are following me back in my time and have fond memories because uh, I enjoy kind of tapping into that. So I guess as you get older, you appreciate it even more. So, But with you, you're my new friend and uh, a friend of the show. I guess you've been doing some updates and following with what the Rangers are going through right now and the start of, uh, I guess it would be phase three for the uh, league and the teams and starting the playoffs. What do you know? What do you know about where they're going to be located? Well, yes, they've definitely been a couple of developments now. They, the league officially said that phase three, which is the official start of training camps will be on July 10th. So the phase that they're in right now is phase two and it's all small and voluntary. And there are still a lot of players that haven't even traveled back to the area where their practice facilities are. So what, uh, my understanding is that by phase three, everybody will have to report to training camp under a mandatory basis. So that was a big development, just getting a date on phase three. And now everybody's just trying to figure out the logistics of phase four. They've been throwing around a couple of hub cities. There's rumors that Vegas is going to be one of them. And then there was a development with Canada yesterday, opening its doors basically to the NHL to solidify a city in Canada. So that that all hasn't been nailed down yet or officially announced, but obviously rumors are running rampant right now. So from what I've read also is that Canada, uh, with the cities Edmonton, Toronto, and Vancouver being in the playoffs, they could potentially have a hub city. And apparently Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that players will not be required to quarantine for 14 days 
Am I reading this correctly, or is that what he actually said? Um, I don't think he explicitly said that, but it's kind of an understanding because the league had previously said that they wouldn't subject their players to that 14-day mandatory quarantine if that's what Canada was going to impose on them. But now Trudeau is saying that, you know, they're open to it. You know, let's start, you know, putting something together. So I think it's a it's a mutual understanding that they won't have to undergo that mandatory quarantine. So I, I think that was a step in the right direction. So um, we'll see where it goes from here. But, um, you know, obviously the three potential cities are Toronto and Edmonton and Vancouver. So honestly, if the league has said that they don't want to have any team have a have a home advantage. So if Vegas is definitely the one of the hub cities, then that'll be where the Rangers and Islanders will be playing likely um, because Vegas won't be able to be a home team. So it'll have to be the other conference that's there. So if that's the deal, then Toronto would be the only city that makes sense because Toronto is in the same conference as the Islanders and Rangers, obviously. Okay. And, and with what's happening right now, currently with some of the, I guess most of the teams, some of the players are back, some are not. Some are like in New York, some of the players are practicing every other day in groups of six. Is that the understanding? Yes. Um, all the players are in specific, the players that are in the area that are going to the facility have to stay in the same group of six players that they've been practicing with just for phase two right now. They're keeping it like the, all the same players that are together in that specific group so that you, you know, it lessens the possibility of cross-contamination or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's the current deal right now. And that'll change once it's phase three, probably it'll, it'll end up being a full team training camp. Okay. Well, we appreciate your time and thanks for an update. And maybe we'll talk again next week as we know more. Thanks for your time, Molly. Awesome. Thanks for having me on again. So let's chat for the first time with New York Post longtime writer Kirsten Fleming. Follow Kirsten on Twitter at Kurt Flem. So Kirsten, uh, so you did a story this week on Jacob Truba and cooking, a hockey player in cooking, which is a little bit unusual. So it caught my eye. So I thought, you know what? I need to talk to her and find out a little bit more about how this thing, all this thing, how did it happen? Yeah, I mean, Truba is an interesting guy, right? He's pretty multifaceted. Essentially what he did, you know, he said he doesn't really sit still very well and he's down in Fort Lauderdale. And so he started taking master classes. Uh, with cooking and he had taught himself how to cook during his first off season because he figured you know he said he had to fend for himself so he learned the basics and what he decided to do was take these master classes with his favorite chef Gordon Ramsay Thomas Keller and he started making all these dishes and what he's learned like any good pro is that he does not have the fundamentals that he thought he had so he's learning the chopping technique he's learning all of the butchering technique he really is kind of firming up his his fundamentals in the kitchen right now okay well i need to back up tell me about yourself because i know you've been with the post a long time your interest in hockey was this just the story itself or do you have an interest in hockey and hockey players i cover sports and athletes off the field. You know, I'm not a box score kind of girl. I just love their the human interest side of it and who these guys are off the field, off the ice. And I went to a hockey college and that was, you know, I was a Rangers fan growing up, but that was kind of where I went to Providence and that was where, you know, I really became friends with a lot of these guys and sort of 
understood the difference between hockey players and other athletes. And I've covered, it's been a while since I've done a good uh, story on a ranger, but I have covered a lot in the past. And hockey players are cool because they, they're a little bit less guarded than other athletes. So I, I find them to, to be pretty refreshing and, uh, and quirky. I always love chatting with them. All right, so let's get back to Jacob Chuba. After talking about his experience of, you know, wanting to cook, is there anything that you can share with us? Um, I guess the ladies would want to know that apparently he was engaged uh, to fiance uh, Kelly Tyson. Now, did they end up getting married? Is he still single? What's the update on that one? Oh, they are very much together. They were planning on getting married at the end of June in Cabo, but they had to cancel their wedding. So, But they're still going to keep the date. So at the end of the month, they're going to get married, Justice of the Peace, very quick ceremony, just to make sure that they keep that and maybe they'll have a party next year. But yeah, the, she she's super interesting because she's a, uh, doing her, finishing up medical school and doing her rotations down in Fort Lauderdale. So that's why he went down there and they've been together because, you know, they have this pretty incredible story about why he wanted to play in the States so she could go to medical school in the States. And um, yeah, so she's very much a part of his career trajectory and, and they're hoping that she can do her residency in New York City. Okay. With his cooking, I, I've read this and I'm not sure if there's any truth to it. Apparently in Florida, he decided to grow, have his own herb garden. Is that true? Yeah. So I think Truba is, is this poster boy for doing master classes. He decided to do a master class with Ron Finley, who's this urban gardener personality and he built his own garden bed on his terrace and planted uh, oregano, rosemary, thyme, lavender, a bunch of different things. So he uses, he cooks with these herbs now. So he's got like a whole bed of them in on his terrace. So he's turned out to be quite a, a renaissance man during this quarantine for sure. So tell us about the show itself for, is it for NBC Sports? Tell us the name of the show and where folks can find it. Yeah, so uh, Skates and Plates is the name of it and what the NHL started it because in the off in this quarantine the league really started looking at different digital platforms digital shows that they could do like PK Subban is doing a trivia show so they came up with this skates and plates show and they pair a player with a, a celebrity chef and the chef and the player remotely cook one of the one of the, the the chef's signature dishes remotely so then the show is you know it's just really a cooking show side by side and they're communicating and they're chatting and they're learning new skills and uh with and it it airs on NBC Sports Network and then also on nhl.com nhl's youtube uh channel so there's there's a lot of different places that you can find it for sure well i have to tell you i think i qualify for this show because uh since really? the lock yes yeah, the lockdown I had to do a lot more cooking for myself because normally like a player like a current player I'm on a plane every week right so I'm always traveling eating on a go eating in restaurants so when I was home I decided you know what I'm gonna figure out how to make the best possible chili and so I got into yeah I went on the internet you know how you can find all the recipes and so I've learned how to make an awesome chili and when you talk about celebrity chefs Todd English, celebrity chef Todd English, is a friend of mine. But I always felt like I didn't want to ask him about recipes because whenever I'm with Todd, it's either it's like he'll put some food in front of me. He'll tell me, all right, eat really quick because we're going out, right? Yeah. <laughs> or <laughs> eat really quick or we're going to play golf. So I've never got into it, but I did it on my own. So next time you speak to the show, let them know I got an awesome chili that I would love to be able to showcase. So I actually 
want to see I want to see Ron Duguay in the kitchen. I'm definitely going to be putting a good word in for you. That's great. Well, here's the thing, though. My show might be a little different because it'll be in the kitchen, but I might be surrounded with friends having a party. This might be a little different type of show, though. Okay, well, make sure that make sure that it's that, that it's COVID legal here. We don't want to get you in trouble. We're gonna have Fauci knocking on your door, so let's let's make sure that it's it's by it's by the book. Well, listen, good talking with you because you and I we're just meeting for the first time now, and I know you've been around the post for a long time. You're part of the family, so am I now. So good talking with you. And if you have any more updates about anything, please feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, this was a pleasure. It was really nice chatting. Thanks, guys. All right, and now for the finale of our New York Post writers, we chat with a longtime Ranger beat writer, Larry Brooks. You can follow Larry on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy. Larry, uh, welcome uh, to the show today as we discuss, because it's the week of the Stanley Cup winners of the New York Rangers in 94, and later we're going to talk with Jay Wells. But before, I just wanted to chat with you because what's funny is that you were on the flip side of things. You were actually covering the New Jersey Devils. I guess when we talk about the Rangers, we strictly talk about the Rangers, not so much New Jersey Devils and what it was like on the other side, because you were so close to them. You kind of had a feel for their heartbeat. So if you don't mind, before we talk to Jay, would like to talk to you about what it was like on the other side with certain players. And and for me, when I think about uh, players for the Devils, I think of a couple of guys. And, and I'm just going to say, I'm going to say, uh, describe that person and you tell me who you think that person is. Okay, here goes. Okay. Stone-faced. Well, yeah, you're probably talking about... You're either talking about Lou or Scott Stevens, and you're probably talking about Stevens since you're talking about a player, right? Absolutely. You know, I played against this guy, and you talk about tough. I mean, all around tough, and every time you see him, even when you see him off the ice, he's that stone face, right? He is among the greatest players I have ever covered. Mark Messier is legendary for setting an example, uh, for being a leader, and rightly so. But Scott Stevens, in his own way, provided that same kind of leadership for the Devils. Um, he was a leader by example, and he could glare at people, too, the same way Mark could. So Scott didn't say an awful lot. Scott was a guy who went out and did it. He did it in the weight room. You know, he was he was first in, last off. He was the hardest worker on the team. You know, he had a stretch of, oh, eight or 10 years, I think, where he was the most intimidating defenseman in the NHL. And he wasn't a cheap shot artist. You know, back in the day, those hits were legal hits. He was a feared player, a great leader, and one of the great defensemen of, of, uh, of the era. Another word that kind of describes one of their impactful players, calmness. Well, that could be Brodeur. Absolutely Brodeur. Love Marty Brodeur. Marty had the uh, had the perfect temperament uh, to play goal. Uh, honestly, nothing bothered him or outwardly. Um, if he gave up a bad one, he just moved on to the next play. And he provided so much confidence for their team that it it, it spread through the group. One of one of their greatest attributes was Brodeur's ability to handle the puck. And it, and it wasn't simply that, you know, he could he could make the stretch pass and, and send the team off on a two-on-one. No, that really wasn't it. He would play the puck so that his defenseman didn't have to play the puck. And he saved them dozens of hits per game, per season, per career. When you think about it, 
you know, if, if Kenny Danico doesn't have to go back and get the puck and he's going to take a hit, if uh, Scott Niedermeyer or if Scott Stevens, if instead Brodeur roams to the corner, picks it up, flips it out, well, how much is that saving for your team? There are some people who like to say Brodeur is a product of his system, but in a large way, the system was a product of Brodeur. Now, people who don't want to give Marty Brodeur credit are, are missing something. So I need to ask you, what was it like for you to be you before game six and Messier's prediction, or he comes out and says, we will win. Do you remember how you reacted to that? Well, I was, I, I wrote that story. I was there. You know, Mark Everson covering the Rangers and I was covering the Devils, but I'm not sure exactly why we switched that day. Maybe because I lived 10 minutes away from the rink here where the Rangers skated and Mark lived maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from where the skated. So, so we switched that day, I guess. It, it was not a, a Joe Namath moment, even though it became a Joe Namath moment. The Devils had dominated games four and five. They were clearly the better team at that point. The Devils had established themselves as the better team. And I remember going to South Mountain Arena where they, where they skated um, that morning, the, the morning skate, and was the back page. And it was major. And the Devils were annoyed. They were all annoyed. Well, are you going to guarantee? You know, of course, as a writer, you have to. Well, are you going to guarantee the win? Are you going to guarantee the win? And uh, one player after another, stone-faced, we don't talk. We just play. You know, they, but they were bothered. There's no question they were bothered. They went out and played probably the best 30 minutes I've ever seen. I mean, they dominated the Rangers. They were up 2 nothing, but it should have been 7 nothing. That was Mike Richter's greatest moment. You, know, you talk about the penalty shot save on Bure, great. He was spectacular in the World Cup in 96 for, for the USA. But in the first 35 minutes of game six, he allowed the Rangers to stay within striking range so that in the third period, when Messier got his three goals, that made it 4-2 for the Rangers instead of 9-3 for the Devils. Because honestly, in the second period, it should have been 5-6-7-0. And then, so it's 2 nothing. They score late in the second period. And obviously, I wasn't in the room between periods, but I'm told that there was kind of chaos in the Devils room. They just didn't know how to handle it. They just weren't quite mature enough. So, um, but I do remember that that morning, game six, they were annoyed. They tried to laugh it off. Um, and, and what sticks with me is after losing that game, they were able to come back two nights later and play the way they did at the Garden in game seven. It was spectacular. That game seven of that series is the best high-stakes hockey game I've ever seen in my life. So that leads me to my last question before we go to Jay Wells. When you think about coaching, do you think Jacques Lemaire, towards the end, got out-coached? I don't think he got out-coached. I, I think he... Um... I think all coaches in the end are at the mercy of their team and the mercy of their player. And the Devils just weren't quite mature enough to nail down the third period of game six. They were mature enough to play a game seven for the ages. They just weren't quite mature enough to, to win game six. And I would say that has less to do with coaching than the people on the ice. Okay, well, leave it there. Let's get to Jay Wells.
My special guest today is a Canadian who played 18 seasons for those seasons with the New York Rangers, a stay-at-home defenseman with the nickname The Hammer. Welcome, my former teammate with the LA Kings, Jay Wells. Welcome to the show. We're kind of going back in time of 94, that season of winning the Stanley Cup. And just so you know, Larry Brooks was on the flip side. He was working following level. So I've been asking him previous to you coming on about what it was like in the other dressing room, which is always interesting for those listening to our show because we always talk about New York Rangers so but today we want to talk about you specifically Jay so you come to the New York Rangers in 91-92 at the end of 92 on a very good team so what was the making of you coming to New York I believe Neil Smith was putting together what he thought was going to be a winning Stanley Cup team and it started in that season he brings you in what's that conversation like with Neil Smith with him bringing you in well, you know, I uh, a long time ago, quite honestly, and I don't know whether Neil and I really talked too much about the dynamics of why they brought me in, other than they were looking for, you know, a stay-home defenseman that had some experience, and at that time, they had Mark Hardy, they had Joe Sorella, they had a few other players there, and they thought that I would fit right in. I was good friends with Mark Hardy, and uh, and so you know, I thought it would be a good fit. Now, there's a funny backstory to all this, and that's when I used to play against New York Rangers, I used to get booed so bad by the Rangers that I hated coming to New York because, well, they throw stuff at me and they boot at me. So I vowed that if I ever got traded to the New York Rangers, that I would literally quit. So when I heard the trade was made, I went home and told my wife that we were traded to the New York Rangers and, and that I guess we're going to hang the uh, my skates up because I wasn't going to go. Luckily, she talked me into going down and uh, and seeing what it was like because, like, like you said, the Rangers were first overall that year, and uh, we were going to go to a very good organization. And she thought, you know what? Why don't we just go down and try it? And thankfully, thankfully, we did because it didn't take long before we were loved in New York. And I uh, say we became a Ranger, I mean, almost instantly, and uh, and uh, loved playing there for three years. I was uh, checking out your record tonight, actually refreshing myself and and uh, refreshing my memory. And I, it actually surprised me to see that you would play just about eleven. Hundred games, 67th most among defensemen in NHL history, which is really quite an achievement. And, and if you could give a scouting report on yourself and tell me or, or and tell us why you think you were able to play as long as you were in a, in a league that chews up defensemen pretty quickly. My whole career, I have a I have an older brother that was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens, and uh, he went to such a skilled team that I um, didn't want to be drafted to a team like that. So I wanted to go to an up-and-coming team, one that was struggling, the one that would allow me to grow with. So if I would have got drafted uh, to a Boston Bruins or a Philadelphia Flyer team or a New York Rangers at that time, I I probably would have got lost in the shuffle because I didn't have a lot of talent. I was a good, solid, tough defenseman that liked to use his body, pick up for his teammates, that kind of stuff. And so, But I went to Los Angeles and I was able to grow with a bunch of other. They were they were <laughs> developing a bunch of young players: Mark Hardy, uh, Larry Murphy, a bunch of young guys, you know, up and coming. I was able to play. I was able to experience a lot of different things uh, in the early years, and became a good player. My first partner was King Kong Korab. Uh, Jerry Korab, and he was a great influence in me. He protected me. He showed me the ropes. I had Dave Lewis, who was a good, solid uh, defenseman, 
played with the Islanders, won a few cups, you know, and so I, I've had some good tutelage along the way. And then, uh, you know, but, you know, when I got to be about my 13th year in the league, I was playing for Buffalo, and I saw my 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 game changing an awful lot to where I was playing instead of being a you know a, a top three or four defenseman on a team, I ended up being a fifth sixth D, and I was more working with young players like uh, Greg Brown and and uh, younger players and you know that that are starting their career, and I thought for sure after 13 years I was going to be you know put out the pasture kind of thing, and then expansion came. And New York picked me up uh, just prior to expansion, and uh, they were on a run. And they, they, so one year I was playing there, and then I say expansion came, and it, it kind of opened the door a little bit for a good, solid defenseman to last a little bit longer. And I, I really assumed that role of teaching the younger guy. I had Drew Bannister, I had Gordon Murphy. Uh, that was prior to New York, but you know I, I started to really adapt that role, and I assumed that role, and I think that's probably helped me, uh, the expansion really helped me to, to hang in there for a few more years, and uh, and like I said, my last year I only played, I think, 18 games, and, and the new guys were starting, the younger guys were starting to take over my role, and I found myself, uh, you know, hanging it up, just my body was tired, but, you know, I still enjoyed the the part of the game of the physicalness and the you know protecting these uh, superstars because I knew that that's how we won they didn't win by me they won by you know these superstars like the Matthews and the Gretzky that scored the goals it wasn't me that was going to score the goals as Ron knows so I think that's how I lasted so long luckily I didn't have any serious injuries I had a few you know stretch knees and uh, you know a few few minor stuff but no career-ending injuries and uh, and I say I still walk around with, with not too many problems. When you saw the team the Rangers were assembling through 91-92, you get there the next season and then into 93-94 with so many marquee guys, a marquee coach coming in in, in uh, Mike Keenan. Did you feel your role changed at all or did your role stay exactly the same, both in the room and on the ice? I think my role was pretty much the same. You know, like there we had so much experience in new york uh, we had some you know amazing players there skill skill wise but then we had some real characters too and uh you know that the years in new york it was uh it was a real blessing for me to to be uh there because in all the years i had never really ever gone uh further than maybe the second round i mean philadelphia went in the second round you know to the second round of the playoffs so I really didn't know what it really took because we had, you know, Kevin Lowe and Mark Messier and Craig McTavish and Keekinen and a bunch of these players that had been through it that have, you know, grown so much by winning these cups that they kind of settled us down. And for me, it was a real emotional roller coaster during the whole playoff, uh, no matter what which team we were playing. Because you'd win a game and you'd be higher in a kite, and then the next game you'd lose, or a game you'd lose, and then you'd be down. And, and these guys just kind of figured out how to just kind of level us out and just get, let us go out and play our game. And so I don't really think my style of play changed much. I laugh and joke to a lot of people when they ask me about that final game in, in New York against Vancouver, and I said, you know, 
I don't know how many shifts I got, you know, but I tell you, I, you know, I shifted left and right a few times. I know that. And, uh, but I had the best seat in the house watching, you know, watching us, you know, beat the Vancouver team. So it didn't really matter. And I think there was a lot of people on the team that had that same attitude that it didn't matter whether they played two minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes. It didn't matter. We all did it as a, as a team, as a unit. And I think that's what it takes to to be successful. So Jay, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, you end up with the Rangers in the end of 92, 105 points, really good team. You're surrounded by Messier, Leach, Graves. And then the following season, 92, 93, not so much, only 79 points. At the time, coach was Roger Nielsen. Now you go into 93, 94. Did you sense in 92, 93 in that dress room that things, something was missing as far could have been coaching or play? players because all of a sudden Neil Smith and coach Keenan makes all these changes right they bring Glenn Anderson Craig McTavish Brian Noonan and out goes Mike Gartner Tony uh, Amani were you one of those guys that you kind of evaluate that things were not right or were you just there because I know you're the type of guy you just show up you do your job and you work hard but did you sense things weren't quite right in the room when you saw these changes made? The one thing that I did notice, and, uh, you know, the year that uh, Roger Nielsen got let go, we, you know, um, you know, was really struggling, you know, 92, 93, I think it was, or whatever. When I first came in, we were first overall, and we got put out by Pittsburgh in five, five games. Kind of surprised us. We thought we were going to go all the way to the Cup that year. We thought we had the team. Obviously, we didn't, and we got fooled. And I think winning a Stanley up, it's there's a learning process to everybody. We weren't ready. We weren't prepared. We did. We took them a little lightly. They got hot, and we couldn't beat them. We got put out. The next year, we came in with the attitude that pretty much the same team, a few extra guys maybe, but pretty much the same team, and all of a sudden, we're losing games, and we're not winning like we were winning before, and we weren't, you know, being successful, and things were starting to spiral out of control, and poor Roger. I love Roger as a man, as a person, but, you know, Roger had us playing a real defensive style game and I think you know you look around the teams that play a wide open run and gun game are usually more successful than the defensive game and so I think people started to realize that maybe we needed a change. Maybe, you know, players and coaches and general managers, they all started to feel it. But what do you do? What's the right move? And so, you know, as a player sitting in the dressing room, I could see things happening, but there were things I didn't like that was happening. But that year that we struggled, there was no reason for us to be struggling like that. We had a strong enough team to win games, but we weren't winning. And I think at the very end, we only had to win something like, you know, like a game or two in the last nine. And we lost all nine or something like that, or we only got a point or something. But we to make the playoffs, we only needed a few points, and we never got any of them. After Roger was let go in March or whatever, they brought in Ron Smith. And again, Ron Smith, great guy, great person, but pretty much the same type coach as Roger was. And I think that shift there of those two coaches, I think, probably opened up Neil's eyes, uh, the general manager, and the ownership that we need a different type of coach in here. And we need to be more offensive because we had so much scoring power. When Mike shows up, you know, it was a little scary because he's a scary man. If I was a young kid, I would have feared him. And I, I did fear him in, in a way, but he also was, you know, very respectful to me. And so, um, you know, he pushed you to the limit, and I, I respected that. And so, you know, but I was sad to see him, right? I'm so good of friends of, of people like, you know, the Tony Amani, the Doug Waits, uh, Mike Gartner. You feel for, for them, uh, for, 
you know, they end up getting moving out and then we get other players in and we go on and, and are successful and they missed out and, uh, and you feel for them, but that's part of the business. And I was just happy that I didn't get moved out. And so, yeah, I, I just, I, I came to the office and I, you know, worked just like I always did and always tried and uh, tried to give my best foot, put my best foot forward and, uh, and that's how I played my whole career. Jay, I'm wondering, there, there was a, a fair amount of tension between Neil and Mike through much of the year, I guess. And I'm wondering if it seeped into the room at all, if you guys were aware of it. Um, if you ever, if you were aware of it, did you need to address it? And did it have any impact on your team? I think they did, the two of them did a pretty good job of hiding that as much as they could. We were all aware of, of uh, the controversy and, uh, you know, and we would, you know, uh, there was times where we chuckled about it and sometimes we had concerns about it, but uh, there was nothing we could do about it. it. It was just something that they had to work out. Uh, no different than any other dispute that you would have with a with a player on your team or a teammate. Uh, you know, you, you usually found a way of working it out. If you didn't, then it would uh, spiral out of control. And they found a way to work together because they were both working to, you know, a final, a final product, uh, and that was to win the Stanley Cup. And they, they bit their lips and they worked together and they got through it. And uh, you know, I can say that you know there, there was things that they did that you know I wasn't in favor of at the time, but it all worked out. So how can you not like it? And uh, and so you know it's uh, yeah we 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 were aware of the situation. It's just uh, it's just that's part of you know trying to build a championship team. And not everybody's on the same page, but we we have to become on the same page to uh, to have the final product go in, our, in the right direction. When I was talking to Mark uh, Messier last week about a piece I did, you know, he again was talking about how he felt it was important to confront the fact that the team hadn't won since 1940 and that he embraced that. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of that flowed through the team and whether you as, as an individual, you know, I, I guess more of a low key guy, did you embrace that kind of a challenge? Did you embrace the kind of, of pressure that Mark and, and I, I guess the leaders of the team were, were putting on themselves and in effect putting on every one of their teammates as well? I mean, they, you know, the, the mandate was there. They went out to hire Keenan. They brought him in. They had Messier here. Um, so there was a clear mandate. And I'm, I'm wondering how you dealt with that. Well, you know what? I didn't really, at the time, I didn't really feel any pressure. I was uh, always been a try to be, uh, you know, a level-headed person when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I know there's a lot of superstitions in the, in, uh, you know, in hockey world, but I didn't, you know, to, you know, touch a, you know, a trophy before you win the actual final cup. I don't believe that there's any hex against you in, in, in any way. So, so for him to come out and actually talk about it, and we did talk about winning the Stanley Cup, but it was a, he, um, Mike Keenan came in and he put the idea in our head. We all had the idea, but we were afraid to say it because, it, oh, well, if you say it, it might not come true kind of thing. And, and, and he put the idea in our head and he was bold enough to say, you know what, guys, this is what we need to do and this is how we got to do it. And this is what could happen if, it, if, it, if we do accomplish it. 
And, and it kind of excited a lot of people. And I kind of took the monkey off everybody's back and said, you know what? We can talk about this. We can discuss this. We can dream about this. We can work towards this. And, and when things started to slide, we could, we could refocus on that idea of, you know what? It's a long season. And, you know, we are to, you know, all walking towards one goal. And that's to win the Stanley Cup. And so, and that's how, that's how these guys like Messier and Kevin Lowe kept us level headed by bringing it up to us over and over throughout the year. You know, that it's okay. You know what? We lost a game. Okay, let's learn from this. Move on because we know the goal is to win the final game. So it was kind of a low effort back for him to do what he did uh, when he first came in. Like, and Mike Keenan I'm talking about is just let's lay it on the table and this is what it is and now let's go after it. And uh, so I found it a, 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 a huge relief. Instead of not talking about it, let's talk about it. Let's get excited about it. Let's get that emotion going more for it, and uh, let's see what happens. Like I said, it was, uh, it was an exciting year, no question. Who would you say in that room, going through what you went through, if there was an unsung hero trophy or an award to a player on that team, according to you, who would that be? Uh, I don't know whether you'd classify this guy as an unsung hero, but I, I put a lot of credit in um, – Two guys. One guy was through experience, and I'm thinking of Kevin Lowe. Uh, you know, he was you know he was a main player, but he he had a rookie uh, beside him that he had to work with and teach, and uh, you know and you know, back him up because Zuby was a was an unbelievably offensive player and could do so many things. But Kevin had to be there to bail him out once in a while, and yet he was also an unbelievable voice in the dressing room. I heard uh, previous years. You know, Mark Messier talk, and, and he's an emotional person. But when Kevin came, it seemed that Mess had changed to a different person. And it was a more controlled and more polished person. And I think Kevin, uh, riding out from New York and living in New York with Mess and being around Mess so much, I think I think he was in Mess's ear talking to him that this is what you got to say. This is what you got to do. You're the, you're the man that can say it. You're the Jeff Hutton you know, that everybody listens to, but maybe you should say it this way. And I think they talked it out and they came up with a great strategy. And so Kevin Lowe, behind the scenes, I think, was doing an amazing job uh, having getting Ness to lead us in the proper way. But there was other another guy that I could think of was Steve Larmer. You know, like he, I saw him beat up, bashed, smashed. You know, he had a broken finger during the Stanley Cup. Uh, and he played through it and he never complained one little bit. And, he, you know, in my mind... That's a warrior. That's a that was a you know an amazing player to play with and to get to know and to be a friend of. And so between those two guys, they were my my two unsung heroes. Well, Jay, I appreciate your time. We look forward to because we see each other a lot in New York, and I know the Ranger fans appreciated your quiet leadership on the ice. And uh, we always get to see each other. We get to play games together, and I look forward to that sometime in the future. So be well, my friend. You too. Take care. Thanks, uh, thanks for this. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special presentation. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to Jake Brown for producing the show. Catch up on all episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ron Duguay 10 Thanks for joining us, folks. 
We will chat with you all next week. Stay safe out there.